Friends, our world is on fire. I'm sure you saw this about three weeks ago. There was this massive heat wave that went over the Mediterranean that provoked fires from northern Africa all the way to Turkey. The images were shocking of whole towns in Turkey, and now this week, towns in Greece and in southern France being burned to the ground. The wildlife that's being lost is unestimated, and it's gut-wrenching. Lives are currently being lost. And as I was watching one of those fires take over a southern town in Turkey and all the devastation that was causing, I was thinking, wow, isn't that a picture of what really is happening, not just in the Mediterranean region, but in our world? There are fires of ideology spreading and taking over. There's fires of hate taking over the world. There are fires of injustice changing the whole landscape. And I can't help but to think and ask the question, what about the church? Where is the fire of the church, of the people of God? You see, uh, we are called to change the landscape, not in a destructive way like the fires that we're seeing, you know, breaking loose nowadays. We are called to change the landscape, to bring in new life and restoration. We are called to bring the living fire of God. And this is what this passage is all about. The title of the sermon today is Lives on Fire, and we're reading from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Would you read it with me? This is what the Word of God says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. There are three things that the Apostle Paul shows us very clearly here in this passage. Number one, that our lives must be on fire for God. Secondly, he shows us how our lives can be on fire for God. And then lastly, Where do we find the fuel to ignite our lives so that it may be on fire? Let's look at all these three things that are present in these two verses. First, our lives must be on fire. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul is appealing to them. He is urging to them. The Apostle Paul is being very serious about this demand. He's saying, if you are followers of Jesus, your lives must be lives that are living sacrifices to God. Now, as you know, the Apostle Paul is evoking Old Testament temple worship to bring about the point of what the lives of Christians ought to look like in this world. As you would know, in temple worship, sacrifices were offered for people to show, number one, that God came first in their lives. At the end of the harvest, uh, they would offer to God the first fruits of their harvest. The best that they had was offered to God 
in the temple. But at the same time, sacrifices in the temple were offered once a year on the day of Yom Kippur as a way to atone for the sins of your family and the sins of the people. There's this idea that as a sacrifice was offered, the divine, God would be appeased. And instead of raining down curses that were a consequence of covenant-breaking behavior of the people, God now would accept those offerings that would rise up to his proverbial nostrils, and he would in return bless his people. The relationship would be repaired and amended. And then as a consequence, the people would not harvest curses, but harvest blessings from God. What the Apostle Paul is saying is the reason why your lives ought to be set as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that never stops burning, a sacrifice that never stops from being offered to God is so that as your life burns, things change. See, when fires take over, they change the landscape of things. They change the climate. Things change. Life changes around where fires take place. And in the same manner, our lives as a fire of God ought to change things, not for the worse, but for the better. And that is why Christians all throughout history have made this an intentional point in their lives and as, have, as they have been ministering to others as well. Uh, St. Ignatius, who was the father uh, of the Jesuits, he used to encourage his parishioners by saying, go forth and set the world on fire. Catherine of Siena used to say to her followers, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. Once they asked John Wesley, the famous evangelist and revivalist, what's the secret to your sermons? Why are your sermons so powerful? And he said, I go into my room and I seek God through word and prayer. And God sets me on fire and people come from towns and villages to see me burn. People, give yourselves to God. Give your lives as an offering to God and allow God to set your life on fire for him so that people would come from miles to watch you burn. Our lives must be on fire as followers of Jesus. The second thing that the Apostle Paul shows us in this passage, in this very short passage that we read, is how can our lives be on fire? And he goes, therefore, now to Verse two, the first way in which you prepare your lives to be a living sacrifice to God, a life on fire, is by a renewed mind, by having a renewed mind. Go to verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We talked about last week of how faith starts with hearing the word of God that's being preached and proclaimed to us. So everything starts in the mind. 
Our minds must be overtaken by the truth of God. We must understand what ultimate reality really is before transformation takes place in our lives. And what the Apostle Paul's been doing all throughout this book, what he's been doing all throughout this letter, is to give people the truth of God, get people in tune with ultimate reality, the reality that is a consequence of a creator God who is a lawgiver for all of the universe. He says, look, the world was created by God, but humans have disobeyed God. Our forefather, Adam, there's a whole chapter about that, has placed all of us under a curse because of his and Eve's disobedience. But then Jesus has come into the world to rescue sinners like all of us, regardless if you're a religious person or an irreligious person, Jesus has come into the world to rescue us and through us restore all of creation. That's what chapter eight is all about. That's what we talked about last week in chapter 10. That's why we must proclaim the gospel to the world so that people would come to grips with God's ultimate reality that they would understand that God is creator, like he talks about in chapter one of Romans, that uh, we are sinners, that we need his grace, that we must admit our sin and call upon his name and experience salvation through faith. And now, from this chapter onward, notice how the chapter started. Therefore, here's the application. Now, after having believed the gospel of Jesus, we ought to live our lives as living sacrifices. And therefore, the Apostle Paul says here, now, now there are consequences to living your life based on this ultimate reality from God. Living your life based on the truth of God and living your life rejecting this truth and this ultimate reality. First, what's the positive consequence that we will harvest if we live our lives by God's ultimate reality, guided by the truth of God. He says here, look, go back to verse two. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We stopped right there the last time we went into the text. And he says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect? I want you, if you're studying the Bible with us, to underline this word, discern. Here's a word for wisdom, okay? The consequence of living your life under God's ultimate reality by being guided by the truth of God is that you will have wisdom to navigate life in this world that you will have access to the wisdom that only comes from the one that has created and is redeeming the world. You will be able to taste that which is good, that which is acceptable to God, and experience his perfect will in your life because you will be living your life according to God's ultimate reality. You will be living your life according to the blueprint, according to the manual. However, 
if you reject God's truth, however, if you ignore God's ultimate reality and you live under any other reality or under any other truth and conform, what he says here in verse two, conform to this world. There are many Christians that profess faith in Christ, but they have conformed to the world, conformed their lives. They've allowed the truths of this world that are not God's truth to shape their lives. And no wonder why there are so many Christians that are lost. There are so many Christians that lack joy in their lives. And by the way, joy is not only a reality that comes with uh, circumstances that are favorable to us. Joy is present in the life of Christians even when there is adversity. See, that's why there's so many miserable Christians, stagnant and lost. They have God's eternal gift, but they are not tasting that which is good and perfect from God in the present. That is a consequence of rejecting the manual that the creator has put together. Like if you take any object in your house, like let's say a chair, which was created for you to sit down, okay, and you try to use that chair as a cooking object, things are not going to go well. If you take a, uh, a toaster and you try to make popcorn in a toaster, it is not going to go well. Why? Because that toaster was not made for you to make popcorn. In the same way, if you live your life out of line with God's reality, in denial that you are a sinner, ignoring God as a creator, looking for other means of salvation other than Jesus, hoping in anything other than God's ultimate future, you can only experience breakdown. Your life will be on fire, not the good way, but the bad way. will catch on fire in a bad way. The only way now you can have access to God's ultimate reality and to have your life being guided by the truth of God is very clear here in the passage. And we talked about that in chapter 10 and now back in, in chapter 12. It comes obviously through the word of God. Faith comes through hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ or the word of God. It comes through the word of God. We believe that the word of God is sufficient for all of life. Now, it doesn't tell us how to fix our car's carburetor, right? But it tells us how to deal with adversity, how to, how to reconcile uh, relationships. In a general way, the Bible gives us guidelines of how to live our lives. It expresses to us the truth of God that comes from the gospel. It reminds us of God's love for us, of our purpose in the world. It is found in the word of God. The word of God is our ultimate rule for a living. We believe that God has gifted certain people to teach his word. Uh, we believe that there are some good resources that have been made by godly people out there to help us navigate life. But ultimately, our highest authority is the word of God. 
which reflects the truth of God into our lives. And it is applied to us by the Spirit of God that works parallel side with the Word of God, allowing us when we read His Word to bring out the truths and so that we are able to understand so the scales fall off of our eyes and we're able now by faith to apply it into our own lives. Even when it's hard, the Spirit gives us that guidance. The Spirit gives us that understanding. The Spirit gives us that power, that power to obey the Word of God. And so I want to tell you that if that is true, and I'm, the th- there's, there's a third way too, I'm going to tell you about it in a little bit. If that is true, you must give yourselves to studying the Bible, to reading the Bible every day, to devote yourselves to prayer, to have a prayer, strong prayer life. Otherwise, you will fall prey to the false narratives of the world. And the truths of the world that are going to be preached at you will begin now to shape your life. You will be conformed. But if you devote yourselves to learning more about the Bible and reading the Bible on a daily basis and giving yourselves up to prayer, your life now will begin to be shaped because your mind will start to be changed. Are you doing enough of that in your life? Not saying this is a guilt trip. We ne- we, none of us do it enough, okay? That's the truth of the matter, including me. But we must do more so that we are being shaped by the truth of God, by God's ultimate reality. And here's the last thing. You need the people of God in your life. If you don't want to be conformed to the world and you want to be renewed in your mind, you need the people of God. You know why? Because it's just too hard to live life in this world. We forget God's truth. And sometimes we need to see others modeling it for us. And how else are we going to see others modeling it for us if we're not doing life with them? You need the people of God. Let me tell you something that's true. You need people in your life, the people of God, to fend the flames, not to put out the flames. (laughs) Some of us have people that when that flame begins to ignite, they put out the flame in us. But you need, you and I need people in our lives that when that flame starts picking up, that they're fanning the flame so that it catches on and it begins to spread into the world, into your neighborhood, into your office space, into this culture. Do you have enough people in your life that are fanning the flames? You need to be at church. You need to be with other believers. I know that this season of life, you know, we have been forced to do church online. That's okay. But that ought to not be the primary way where you are being renewed in your mind. You need the people of God as well. So how can our lives be on fire? Number one, by having a renewed mind. Secondly, by having a transformed heart. Go back to verse 2. I want to show you something here if you read this verse carefully. What he is in essence saying is that a renewed mind transforms everything. Look, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, by the renewal of your mind. What brings transformation in our lives? A renewed mind. 
a renewed mind being, brings transformation in our lives. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he says this? Man, this is very deep. I want you to understand this. It's not enough, listen, it's not enough for the gospel to be true to you. For God's ultimate reality to be accepted as truth to you. It's not enough. It must be real. It must be real. It must be experienced. There's a lot of Christians that I know that they understand intellectually the gospel. But it has stayed in their heads. It has never dropped down to the heart. The goal is that which is on your head to drop down into your heart. You must taste the will of God. He talks about tasting here and testing. You must taste the will of God. You must taste and experiment the goodness of God. You must experience the perfections of God in your life. There's an old theologian that used to say there's a difference between knowing about the sweetness of honey and actually tasting the sweetness of honey. I can tell you that honey is sweet. It's very sweet, but if you've never tasted honey, it's hard for you to imagine because you're always going to be comparing maybe to sugar if you've never tasted honey. I'm just saying, I don't know that there's anybody in the world that has never tasted honey, but let's say they haven't. It's hard to explain intellectually. You may, you get, you may get it. Oh, okay, I, I think I get it. I think I know how it, how it maybe tastes. But another thing is for you to put honey on your tongue and taste it. It's one thing for you to know about Jesus. Another one is for you to taste Jesus in your life. It's one thing for you to know that God exists and another one for you to experience God's existence in your life. It's one thing for you to know that God is good and the other one for you to experience his goodness in your life. It is very different. And it must come down to the heart. It starts with a renewed mind, but it must come down to the heart. And here's where prayer and the reading of the God's word and God's people, you know, all ties in together to what I'm saying. These are what we call spiritual disciplines, corporate worship, the reading of God's word, prayer. These are kind of like mechanisms that sometimes you don't feel like doing, right? But every time that you do it, it helps to push the truth down further into your heart. It's helping to drill that truth down. And at what moment, as that truth is being pushed down through these spiritual disciplines, your life catches on fire, catches on fire. Sometimes you're reading the word of God and you're like, I didn't get anything out of it today. I don't know, like if I should do it tomorrow. Uh, yesterday I tried it, it wasn't that great. And sometimes I pray, I don't even think that God is listening to me. My mind gets distracted. Even if all of that is happening, keep doing it. I come to church and no one talks to me. I didn't get anything out of the worship experience. You know, maybe this week I'm just gonna try the beach or I'm gonna take my kids to the park. Stick to the spiritual disciplines. They're drilling down the truth of the gospel in your heart at one moment is going to catch it, ignite your heart on fire. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, was a Christian. He was very familiar with the Christian tradition and Christian dogma and attended church, did everything that Christians do. And at one day, after a moment of prayer, something that he would do every night before he went to bed. Something happened. He caught on fire. These are his words. 
Pay attention. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, November 23rd. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight. It lasted about two hours. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Blaise Pascal. You know what's beautiful? When Blaise died, they were going through his stuff and they found his coat. And that experience as it is written and as I have read to you, was sewed into the inside of his coat. (laughs) Life caught on fire. So it takes a renewed mind, a transformed heart, and then a full life of worship. See, this is what the apostle Paul calls your spiritual worship. Let's go back to verse 1. And read the last part of verse 1. Let's actually read all of verse 1 and let's focus on the last thing he says in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now listen, which is your spiritual worship. What does the apostle Paul mean by spiritual worship? He makes it clear here. Our bodies, bodies being presented as living sacrifice. Now, this is very interesting because when we think of worship, we think as just like a spiritual activity. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that real spiritual worship, the worship that God is looking for in line with what Jesus preached to the woman at the well in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in Samaria. Remember that passage? That God is seeking worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. Spiritual worship is worship that's done with our bodies. It's not just an activity of the spirit like the Greeks believed who were dualists. It's something that you do with your whole being, your whole being being engaged. Our worship is demonstrated with palpable things, material things through our bodies because God is the God, not just of our spirits, but of every dimension of life. There isn't a square inch in the universe that hasn't been touched by Jesus and who he claims, it is mine. All of it is his. And therefore, our worship to him ought not just to be something that is public, but private as well. Not only something that is corporate, but it's intimate. It's not only something that I do in church, but I do outside of church. That I demonstrate in my work and in my family and in my marriage. All of it is worship. That's what spiritual worship, the worship that's offered with our bodies all of life because we live in a physical world as well and it's got to be demonstrated in real terms. Because there's a lot of people here that come to church and maybe you're sitting at home and while the band was playing, you were lifting your hands. But when we go to your office space, there's no worship of Jesus there. There's a worship of money or something else or achievement. 
as some of you come and lift your hands up here at church. But there is no worship of Jesus in your homes. You're worshiping your pride. You're worshiping your comfort. You're worshiping your children. You're worshiping your spouse. It's got to be all of life or nothing. Some of us worship Jesus with our voices, but not with our wallets. <laughs> it's got to be everything and everywhere. Because when your heart catches on fire, it spreads to all the different areas of your life. And many of you ought to be asking the question, what are the quarters and the areas of my life that it has still not been taken over by the fire of God? And you got to remove some of those barriers. You hear what I'm saying? So that the fire of God that has ignited your heart can spread to that area of life as well. The gospel ought to be a reality in all areas of your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your finances. It has got to affect your sexuality, your work, all of it, your parenting, all of it. That's what it means offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship to God. So how can our lives be on fire? With a renewed mind, transform heart, and a life full of worship, or a full life of worship. Now here's the last question, last point. Where do we find the fuel, or the right fuel, to set our lives on fire? And the answer to this question is very simply here in the very beginning of the verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Underline the mercies of God. What is the fuel? The mercies of God. Now, here's the question. Where do I see the mercies of God most clearly in my life? On the cross. On the cross, I see the mercies of God on my behalf as Jesus is catching on fire for God, to God, for our sakes. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus' life was a life on fire, a life that we seek to have as well. And it's demonstrated in every aspect and area of our lives. That's what the rest of the chapter, by the way, is all about. Right after these two verses, he talks about the spiritual gifts, how we ought to be a servant uh, to the body of Christ. And then in the last portion of this chapter, he's talking about how we should serve the world as well. That's what a life of fire looks like. And that's what the life of Jesus was all about. His life was a life on fire, and it's most visible to us on the cross. God's mercy demonstrated to us. And so we don't get to set our own lives on fire. It's the gospel that sets our lives on fire. And it's to the degree that I see Jesus burning for my and your sake that I find the power to burn my life for his sake.
So may your lives burn as a living sacrifice. And may the world see it. And it may change landscapes. May our lives together here in the city of Miami change the landscape of the city. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. In a life-giving way. Because we have offered our bodies as living, not dying, living sacrifices to God. May you do that today. Go to Jesus and say to Jesus, take all of my life. Take all of it. I see your mercies on my behalf. I see you burning for my sake. I want to burn for your sake too. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we are grateful that you were stretched out on the cross and you burned for a whole world to see. And Father, you did it to give us light. You did it to give us hope. You did it to purify us from sin. Father, you did it to give us new life. And Father, we want in the same manner be a burning offering to you to bring life to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.